Broadcast to the center of your mind. This is the Counter Power Half Hour. I'm your host, Astoria. Welcome to the Counter Power Half Hour. President Trump was elected in 2016, which was a surprise to a lot of people around the world. People everywhere wondered how'd he win? What happened? Allegations of Russian interference aside, Trump has a strong core of supporters that can't really be dismissed with stereotypes of being racist, poor, or uneducated. Have you ever wondered about the substance of Trump's appeal? It has a lot to do with his appeal to the average American. To his supporters, Trump is a non-politician, someone honest, an outsider, especially when contrasted with someone like Hillary Clinton, who has extensive political experience and connections. There's a sentiment that a politician who is just like us will understand the problems of the average person better than a career politician. This is populism, politics that are aimed at ordinary people. But populism is not a new phenomenon. The idea of voting for someone because they're just like us has been around for a while, and populist presidents have been elected before. In this episode, we're going to examine the rise of populist conservatism. In particular, I'm going to be talking about the origins of the New Right, a strain of populist conservative thought that first popped up during the 1960s. I'll be focusing on the 1960s and the 70s, and that'll take us into the 1980s and the rise of Ronald Reagan and the conservatism we know presently. I'm sure you'll notice the similarities in the characteristics, rhetoric, and appeal of conservatism today. So what was the New Right? I'm going to start us off with a clip of President Nixon in 1968 accepting the presidential nomination at the Republican National Convention in Miami Beach, Florida. I think this clip demonstrates a lot about what, and who, the new right was. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? Listen to the answer to those questions. It is another voice. It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. They're not racist or sick. They're not guilty of the crime that plagues the land. They are black and they're white. They're decent people. They work and they save and they pay their taxes and they care. This, I say to you tonight, is the real voice of America. In this year, 1968, this is the message it will broadcast to America and to the world. Let's never forget that despite her faults, America is a great nation. And America is great because her people are great. So, in that speech, Nixon's talking about the people that America needs to make America great again. The great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans. Regular people, according to Nixon, had the power to make America great again. Sound familiar? It's important to recognize that the new right arose as a backlash, largely in response to the radicalism and violence of the 1960s. It was a backlash against hippies, black militants, the civil rights movement, 
and anti-Vietnam War protesters. The Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinations in 1968 and the Vietnam War were aired on televisions across the nation, which heightened Americans' perceptions of violence. But it wasn't just a response to radicalism. It was also a break with the liberal status quo of the 1960s. The United States had lost the Vietnam War, and Nixon had resigned after the Watergate scandal, and there was a major reaction against authority in general. The Americans who made up the New Right were largely those who were ignored by Democrats during the radicalism and protests of the late 1960s. They opposed what they saw as the growing intrusiveness of the state in everyday life. They were Americans who felt that they had worked hard and attained a reasonable amount of wealth, and were afraid of losing it all due to inflation and unemployment. According to Time magazine in 1969, these Americans were a large and unorganized group, about 100 million people, which included blue-collar workers, the elderly, and a large portion of white-collar workers. They were middle-aged, middle-class, and generally not intellectuals or liberals. To those on the new right, conservatism just clicked. They appreciated the importance of working hard, which had worked for them, and they liked its individualism and Christian character, which informed their sense of morality. They frowned upon welfare, which, in their eyes, rewarded those who didn't work hard enough. They were regular, everyday people. Those on the new right had a dislike for taxes, the government, and bureaucrats. They disliked both the Democrats and the established conservative movement. This new right had its roots in the conservatism of the 1960s. During the 60s, conservatives were concerned about the state and its role in American life, and sought to limit it. Barry Goldwater, senator from Arizona and widely considered to be one of the founders of the conservative movement, wrote in his very popular book, The Conscience of a Conservative, that the federal government had overreached into every possible area and had become a leviathan, a powerful institution that was both out of touch with regular people and out of their control. The overreaching state had a lot to do with what conservatives perceived to be a decline in religiosity, autonomy, and the importance of the family. What conservatives thought of as a liberal influence in American schools and politics threatened their traditional way of life, associating this influence with communist subversion. According to Goldwater, quote, the rot of communism had set in, end quote, even during the 1940s. The new right focused on social issues combined with free market economics. There was also the issue of race. Some historians think that racism and fear of African Americans were part of this conservative backlash. During 1965, the Watts riots, riots which took place in Los Angeles due to police brutality upon African Americans, were broadcast on television, and white Americans saw black youth looting businesses during the riot, creating a moral panic by the media. Black militancy was also on the rise, which led to a white backlash. However, even though a lot of conservatives were concerned about welfare, minorities, and blacks, they didn't consider themselves racist. Of course, some probably were racist or prejudiced in some way, but for a lot of conservatives, their concerns were primarily economics and class. One woman in Maryland wrote that Americans were tired of being thought of as racist and dumb by white liberals and black militants. To her, the issue was the economy and class. Plus, minorities and blacks weren't the only groups that conservatives were frustrated with. They also attacked white liberals and judges. In addition, there was also the sense that the institution of the American family was under attack. 
The nuclear family as an institution had an important role in the way Americans saw their society, as the family was believed to help prepare good citizens. But by the mid-1970s, half of all married couples were getting divorced. This was partially due to economic hardships, as people were forced to work more hours and incomes were getting lower. But feminism was also an element. Women were working on their own careers, and many women began to feel that their marriage no longer fulfilled them. There was also Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision in 1973 which legalized abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy. All this was combined with rising premarital sex rates, more children born out of wedlock, sex education, and homosexuality becoming acceptable in American cities. Pornography was on the rise as the Supreme Court had gotten rid of many censorship laws that had prohibited pornographic material. As a result, many Americans thought that society was becoming more decadent and Christian values were being dismantled by a sexual revolution. This brand of conservatism clearly appealed to many Americans, but it had a long way to go to attain political power and a national voice in the 1960s. Conservatism was still a fringe movement. During the 60s, understanding that they had no real power, conservatives began to organize. This brand of conservatism clearly appealed to many Americans, but it had a long way to go to attain political power and a national voice in the 1960s. Conservatism was still a fringe movement. During the 60s, understanding that they had no real political power, conservatives began to organize. Intellectuals and businessmen began to publish books and journals. There was also mobilization at the grassroots. The John Birch Society, a radical right-wing group, was just one example of a group that discontented Americans could look to in order to combat liberalism and its influence. By organizing these groups, Conservatives were able to harness anti-liberal and anti-communist sentiment by attracting sympathetic Americans and turn it into a political movement with grassroots momentum. Many meetings among conservatives took place in their homes, and conservative reading material was passed through networks of families and friends. Christianity also played an important role in spreading the new conservative ideology, as religious leaders preached staunch anti-communism. In terms of exercising political power, these conservatives came to realize that they could attain and exercise power most efficiently by operating within the established political and state framework, and sought to join and influence the Republican Party. The John Birch Society, which was headed by Robert Welch, a Republican supporter, penetrated the Republican Party by doing important activist work for them. This conservative surge led to Barry Goldwater's presidential nomination in 1964. Goldwater appealed to Americans who held the conservative views of small government and states' rights. Importantly, Goldwater appealed to wealthy Californian businessmen who wanted to exert more power within the Republican Party, and who ended up backing Goldwater financially. But Goldwater ultimately lost the presidency to liberal Lyndon B. Johnson in 1964, as his conservative agenda didn't appeal to the majority of Americans. He lost by the largest margin in American history. His talk about demolishing the welfare state and limiting government didn't appeal to people in what was largely the liberal age. Despite this, conservatives saw Goldwater's 39% popular vote as momentum that needed to be maintained. In 1966, the same businessmen who had backed Goldwater for president approached Ronald Reagan to be governor of California. Reagan won, and he became a major conservative figure. We'll talk more about him later. As we saw earlier in this episode, in 1968, 
Nixon won the presidency by campaigning on the same conservative, populist themes that Goldwater did in 64. He appealed to the majority of Americans who were sick of the protests, the average American who paid their taxes and didn't like their taxes being used for government programs to support those they thought were lazy. But then Watergate happened, and Nixon resigned. The Republican Party was stained. But this didn't stop Americans wanting someone with populist sensibilities to lead their country. And this desire wasn't limited strictly to the Republican Party. Disillusioned with mainstream politics, Americans looked outside of mainstream politics for their president during the 1970s. Enter Jimmy Carter, who came in as an outsider. He understood the American electorate's distrust of politicians, particularly after years of Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Watergate. Carter portrayed himself as a non-politician, emphasizing his background as a farmer and southerner. He really didn't describe himself as a Democrat. He was often shown walking through cornfields in a farmer's shirt, and he'd greet visitors to Plains, Georgia, where his peanut farm was, in jeans, and would talk with them about those political elites over in Washington. This image gave the impression that Carter was a common man, an outsider, someone who didn't fit in with the political elite in Washington that had caused all this trouble. Carter was defined by his character, rather than his political ideas. Instead of talking about issues and ideas, Carter wanted to offer Americans somebody they could trust. In other words, Carter was a populist. Carter had his appeal to the average person, but it didn't last for long. Both he and the Democratic Party suffered a few hits, which caused public sentiment to sway towards the Republican Party again. In 1979, the Iran hostage crisis, in which the American embassy in Tehran was occupied by the Iranian army, and his inability to free them was perceived as weakness by Americans. Carter's reaction to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 only furthered that perception. Despite his efforts to appear tough on the Soviets by announcing new programs to fight another war, it came across as a nervous exaggeration. There was also the 1979 energy crisis, where the United States faced an oil shortage as a result of the Iranian Revolution and its resultant decrease in oil production. So, by the end of the 70s, just like in the 60s, a major issue for the new right was to create a way to gain power. Conservatives rallied around Christian values, especially evangelicals. The Christian influence was a major factor in the success of the new right. Jerry Falwell, a Southern televangelist, created an organization that combined Christian morals with political influence, which he called the Moral Majority. There were talks of a political third party, as many were skeptical that the Republican Party, which was associated with big business, the banks, and Richard Nixon and Watergate, would be suitable. But the Republican Party was undergoing massive change at the end of the 70s. Power in the party shifted to the point where it was necessary to support low taxes, harsh prison sentences, and Christian values to even be considered a candidate. Reagan became the Republican Party's presidential candidate for 1980. He had become a conservative champion in 1965 when he gave a speech supporting Goldwater for president. During the 60s, when he was campaigning for governor of California, Reagan preached a populist message, attracting even Democratic voters. The moral majority had a strong influence on the Republicans' presidential campaign platform in 1980, but they weren't enthused about having Ronald Reagan as their presidential candidate. Reagan had had many affairs during his time in Hollywood. He was divorced, 
and while he was governor of California, had signed an extremely liberal abortion bill. But Reagan, like the evangelicals, believed strongly in American exceptionalism. Reagan preached a message of small government, American nationalism, Christian traditional values, and rhetoric about the people, which resonated with Americans. He also campaigned on the promise to make America great again. He was elected in a landslide in 1980. The new conservatism began as a fringe movement, and its champion in the 60s, Barry Goldwater, lost the presidency to liberal LBJ in 1964, but the appeal of populism and the idea of the common person survived and crossed party lines. In a response to the radicalism and violence of the 60s, the Vietnam War, and Watergate, Americans turned away from politicians and liberalism and towards people who they felt were like them and who would protect a traditional way of life and Christian values. The rise of Reagan can be traced back to the 1960s with the rise of the conservative movement and populism. The appeal of populism survives to the present day, resonating with many regular people. What is it about tradition and the average person that's so appealing and so persistent? The reflections of ourselves and our politicians actually create a truer democracy? Can career politicians and billionaires ever actually reflect the common person and their needs? This has been an episode on the rise of populist conservatism. All sources for this episode and further reading can be found on counterpowerhalfhour.com. Thanks for listening.